This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, March 5th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Vladimir Putin's big announcement intended for a global audience, nuclear weapons that he says cannot be intercepted. But does that announcement really change the calculus for nuclear-armed countries? Cato's Emma Ashford and Eric Gomez comment. President Vladimir Putin um, of Russia gave a speech before the Federal Assembly um, where he unveiled several nuclear weapons. Uh, One of them, the sort of most eye-catching one, was a nuclear-powered intercontinental range cruise missile rather than ballistic missile, as well as several uh, missile types and um, what's known as a hypersonic glide vehicle uh, that some of which the U.S. has known about before, um, but others that were sort of more exotic and less was known about them. All right. So, I mean, we've long thought or or conventional wisdom has long been that nuclear weapons, you have them so you don't have to use them in a way. And uh, the fact that that Putin is claiming this new new weapon that we have is impossible to intercept, uh, how much does that actually uh, matter for the purposes of the deterrent effect of nuclear weapons? Well, I think that when it comes to nuclear weapons, perceptions are very important. And in missile defense particularly, there's something that I call a perception reality gap. And the reality of missile defense is that we don't actually have that much and it's not that effective. So Russia shouldn't feel so worried about the development of our capabilities. But I think their perceptions of what missile defense is capable of or their worry about what happens, you know, down the line when when technology gets better, um, drives them to sort of pursue these capabilities and make sure that they always stay a step ahead of the defensive capability with their offensive capability. So you have this sort of uh, technological arms racing where one side, the United States, is building defenses to counter a country like North Korea. The Russians get shaky about it and get paranoid about it and build more technically complex uh offensive capabilities to get through that missile shield. Um, So that's, I think, the essence of what's happening. And when Putin unveiled a lot of these capabilities or talked about them in his speech, he's explicitly referenced U.S. withdrawal from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty in 2002 and missile defense in general as being the drivers for uh, developing these systems. He didn't explicitly reference it, um, but the president also sort of was responding to the nuclear posture review that the U.S. put out about a month ago. Um, and, and that was, again, a fairly large break from traditional U.S. nuclear policy, uh, suggesting things like all these these low-yield nukes that could be used individually and perhaps they wouldn't lead to an overarching nuclear war. And so some of this is just um, talking about responding to the way that, that we've been talking about nuclear weapons too. From a practical point of view, Eric's right. This is this is future-proofing. Um, the Russians could blow us up before he gave the speech and they could blow us up after he gave the speech. Nothing has actually really changed in that sort of balance of forces. And so uh, how much of this is just then political? Quite a lot, I think. So um, the, the Western media here has been really focusing on all these these new nuclear missiles and they're, they're shiny and they look cool. But actually, um, this was a campaign speech. This was sort of a, a combination of the, the Russian equivalent of the State of the Union um, and a campaign speech for Putin's re-election. And the election is coming up on March 18th. And so the fact that um, this was a very sort of bellicose speech talking about how great Russia is, about how they're 
their new capabilities can overcome American defenses. Um, all of that sort of plays into this narrative that Putin's been building for many years, which is that he brings Russia sort of back to greatness. Russia is again a great power, big player on the world stage. And so it's largely playing to a domestic audience from that point of view. And I think it's particularly notable that Putin did actually spend the first hour of the speech talking about domestic economic policy. No one here is talking about that, but that's because he didn't say anything new. The only part of the speech, the only thing that he said that was interesting was the foreign policy part. And that's really about the only policy he has to appeal to the Russian people at this point. And it's it's strange to uh, feel the need to unveil new weapons if you're doing that primarily for a domestic audience when uh, the Russian government has four uh, good or bad reasons has done quite a lot to make the opposition to uh, President Putin as weak as possible. Absolutely. I mean, so nobody believes that this is going to be a real election. Putin is going to win. The question is, what will the official margin that he wins by be? Um, but the Russian government has been facing a bit of a problem as they try and head towards the election in that no one in Russia is excited about this election. Nobody's interested. And what they expect is that turnout is going to be really low. And so they're worried that if turnout is really, really low, that this will look bad, even though it's not really a free and fair election. So they're kind of trying to drum up interest in the election. It's, it's a very strange thing to talk about elections in a, an authoritarian state like this. But there is still an element of they want the public to sort of turn out and support Putin. Is there uh, are, should we be concerned that the United States government will now overreact to the announcement of these uh, new toys, these new highly destructive toys? Um, I think that we should keep a close eye on the upcoming um, missile defense review that should be released later this month. Uh, I know that there has been greater talk about increasing U.S. defensive capabilities against things like hypersonic weapons um, and adding new technology uh, to missile defense systems to uh, counter the types of things that Putin wants to develop. Um, and I think in general, a sort of broader point uh, – as the United States builds out missile defense to deal with the North Korea threat, I think it's important to understand how other countries, especially the Russians and the Chinese, sort of view the developments and how they react. And I think uh, what I worry about uh, is that as the U.S. sort of focuses on the North Korea threat, the ways in which the Russians and the Chinese will opt to respond um, will damage uh, strategic stability or crisis stability and make future conflicts more prone to escalate quickly. Um, and I think uh, that bears careful consideration going forward as the United States thinks about how to do missile defense um, and that, you know, it would be unwise for us to sort of push their concerns completely aside and say, oh, they're nothing more than propaganda because it very clearly is influencing their threat perceptions and influencing their policies. Um, so I think adopting some sort of self-limitations on missile defense development would be good for us both in terms of uh, budgetary savings um, but also in terms of uh, sort of heading off some of the worst impulses of the Chinese and Russians as they react. And you, you mentioned it earlier but the uh, – Russia has been very critical of the US for pulling out of uh, a treaty. Right. And, and so, so does that have any impact here? Well, the, the old ABM treaty uh, signed in 1972 was really – uh, part of it was meant to say that, you know, the, it acknowledged this 
uh, relationship between defensive and offensive systems and nuclear war and that you can't really have limitations on offensive systems if there aren't limitations on defensive systems. And what the U.S. did when it pulled out of the ABM treaty um, was after it did, the Russians said, "Okay, um, you pulled out. So now we're going to develop better offensive systems to counter your better defensive systems. And that was the situation that we were entering into, I believe, in the 1960s um, when ABM systems were first being deployed. Uh, and now it's just sort of come back with a vengeance um, now. So, what, so that's what we're seeing. The, the big problem, I think, with uh, sort of ballistic missile defenses is the same as it always has been. You go back to the Bush administration and you see that they're setting up, you know, they want to set up a missile shield in Poland and it's designed to catch uh, missiles coming from Iran, right? Um, or now we talk about the Trump administration and we talk about North Korea. And so U.S. policymakers say that ballistic missile defense is designed to deal with rogue states. And from that point of view, it's understandable. And they say it's not aimed at Russia or China. But I think this point Eric was getting to is, is that Russia and China still view these things as threats. They still see it as potentially undermining their nuclear capabilities. And so our withdrawal from that treaty basically leads Russia and China to think about building newer, better weapons, building up their arsenals and what they can do to counter our missile defenses. So to some extent, this is a problem we've created for ourselves. Yeah. And even though that we say our defenses are limited, you know, we're still willing to pump a lot of money into the MDA or to the Missile Defense Agency um, and keep on increasing the size of our interceptor fleets and also the technical capacity of the interceptor fleets. Um, and it's sort of at one point, at what point do you, what point do you have the numbers that really are for a limited threat? Emma Ashford is a research fellow at the Cato Institute and Eric Gomez is a foreign policy analyst. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 